for me, it's it's almost like the sort of Buddhist philosophy of a beginner's mind. You're right. I'm I've never been a very confident person. I've always doubted my abilities. There is power in pessimism in some sort of a way, because if you're thinking and I've done this when I'm bike racing, I'm like, I'm not fast enough. I'm not good enough. I need to try harder. What are my competitors doing? That kind of pessimism has actually made me work a lot harder. And most of the high achievers I know kind of think that they suck. You know, I don't know a lot of people that really are high achievers that are like, I am so good. I've got nothing else to learn. Happy Tuesday and welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Though it occurs to me you may not be listening to this on a Tuesday, in which case, happy whatever day it is. Today's guest is Rebecca Rush. Rebecca is an ultra endurance sports athlete, which is about as intense as it sounds. She started her career doing something called adventure racing, which included everything from mountain biking to rock climbing to orienteering to whitewater rafting. Then after she finished adventure racing at 38, she entered her first 24-hour mountain bike race. And of course, she won, as you do. And in the years since that, she has become something of a legend, although I think that still might be selling it short, in the mountain biking world. She has won the Leadville 100, which is a 100-mile mountain bike race through the Rockies, obviously at high altitude, obviously very difficult. She won that four times in a row. She is the first person to bike the entire length of the Ho Chi Minh Trail which goes through Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. She did that and made it into an Emmy-winning documentary called Blood Road because that trip was not just about biking the trail, but also about biking back to the place near the trail where her father's plane was shot down in the Vietnam War. And as she talks about in today's episode, that trip ended up being a very, obviously, emotional and pivotal experience in her life. And most recently, she has biked a 350-mile portion of the Iditarod Trail, and it's completely self-supported. So she has to bring in all her food. She has to bring in all her shelter. She sleeps on the trail. She's hoping to do that trek again in preparation for ultimately doing the entire trail, which is a 1,000 miles. So you understand why Rebecca has been named the Queen of Pain, why she is an icon in the ultra-endurance world, and why I wanted to have her on. And so whereas most of our guests have maybe come from a place of mastery so far this season, Rebecca comes from, as again, as she says, this Buddhist concept of beginner's mind, which is always about, I have more to learn. It's not necessarily a lack of confidence, but it is a level of humility, you know, the sense that I can always do better or I can always do more. There's always more to learn to up my game. And I think there's a real lesson in that because I think a lot of times we have to feel like we are so good or so ready to do something before we do it. And Rebecca has obviously proven that you can triumph and succeed immensely when maybe you feel like you're not ready. Instead of having that be reason to give up, make that sort of the seed of motivation that gets you to try harder. Here's my conversation with Rebecca Rush. Rebecca Rush, welcome to Airplane Mode. Thank you. It's great to be here. I did put my phone in Airplane Mode too, so this is perfect. Yes, I love that. I believe you're our first (laughs) guest to actually do that. We had one person put it in Do Not Disturb, but not actually Airplane Mode. (laughs) How is Ketchum, Idaho, by the way? I bet it's much more idyllic than New York City. It's great. It's winter time, and so I, I do a lot of playing in the snow this time of year, and, and I'm training for a big expedition in Alaska coming up. So I'm uh, spending time outside in the cold, but it's beautiful and sunny, and yeah, it's, it is a nice place. It's pretty inspiring to be able to walk outside your door and, and do something outdoors. 
What does playing in the snow constitute for you? Because I imagine it might be a, a little bit different than what most people consider play in the snow. Yeah, I mean, it's everything from walking my dogs, you know, down by the river, right by our house and, you know, putting on big tall boots because the snow's tall. But I also do a lot of fat biking in the winter, which is riding bikes on snow with, with t- big five-inch tires and, you know, a lot of flotation and bikes that are meant to uh, to be ridden on the snow. Um, but I also backcountry ski. I cross-country ski. I'm lucky in that I have sort of a buffet menu to choose from for outdoor sports. And then I also do some indoor training on my bike inside in my basement for specific training. But but really, I, I have a lot of choices outdoors. And while I'm known as a cyclist, I do a lot of other things. You know, I started as a runner like you are and, and rock climber. And so I do kind of have all those things at my fingertips here. I would like to get into some of that. I don't, you know, I'm always, I always hesitate to ask people to sort of restate things. I know they've said a hundred times before, but just to get a sense of your background, I mean, everything I've read about you talks about how you ran cross country in high school. And then I often think that the next chapter that gets talked about is these eco challenges that you did on, which were sort of like, sounds like seven day long adventures. And I think some people have said they're they're like the precursor to Survivor because the guy who did the Mark Burnett then went on to produce Survivor, I believe. But so I'm just curious, like if you could connect the dots a little bit between how you go from cross country in high school to then doing these eco challenges and what those were, I think that would give listeners like a, a sense of your background. Yeah, I think my sport background, I mean, I've been an athlete for decades since since high school, really. And as a freshman uh, in high school, you know, like most young girls, I I had body confidence issues and, you know, trying to fit in and what is my peer group and, you know, what's high school going to be like. And, and I got talked into by my next door neighbor to joining the cross country running team. And what she told me, and, and this is how I found sports and, and really a, a big pivot that shaped my entire life. But, you know, what she said to me is, you know, if you join the cross-country running team, you're, you'll are you never get fat and you get a free sweatsuit. Hmm. <laughs> so for me, I was, and it was like those cool cotton ones, you know, that were like the hoodie. And, and so for me, it was like, well, okay, I'll do that, you know. And, and, but what ended up, you know, maybe wasn't the best motivation to get into sport, but what I really found was, confidence in myself and that my body could be a tool for something really amazing and and also friends and connectivity and and really learning to try hard and commitment and so that really did start my athletic career and and yeah I've pivoted to a lot of different sports from adventure racing rock climbing paddling you know cycling now is kind of the the main thing on the menu and skiing but there is and while it may seem like it's all over the place, really the common theme throughout all of those sports I've done is is a curiosity and a sense of adventure and me wanting to see what's around the next hill or over the next mountain. And so, yeah, the adventure racing that you mentioned, that was really a, a multi-sport and a, a team sport. And they were ultra-endurance events where you're given a map and a compass and a bunch of checkpoints you have to hit. You have to travel with your team. You can't leave anyone behind. Um, They had to be co-ed teams. And it was everything from riding bikes to riding camels and being on foot, mountaineering, you know, swimming in rivers. And it really was a master's degree in, you know, multi-sport and navigation and, and doing an expedition because you're carrying, you know, all these things on your back with you. While you had to hit the checkpoints and navigate to them, the course was not marked. And so you could go around a mountain, over a mountain. You really had to make your choices 
navigationally. And that was such a learning experience for me. One in that there's not one path to get somewhere, mm, <laughs> whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's on a course or whether it's in life, that there's a lot of different ways to do it. And the second part of it really was that, you know, the team dynamic of traveling with with four people. They are usually four person teams, co-ed. I was often the only woman. And the dynamic of being cold and hungry and sometimes lost and scared and in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and the human dynamic that happens there, what you learn about yourself, but also what you learn about other people and and supporting each other when things seem really, really hard. And that sense of adventure, you know, that really adventure racing really suited my kind of desire to explore, but also to do different things. And while I'm a cyclist now, you know, I love outdoor sports and I love, like I said, seeing what is down that river path or the pathless traveled or that trail that nobody takes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going off trail. And, and so what's exciting about my career now is I feel like all of that expedition type of travel is now merging, you know, many years later with my cycling. And hmm. while I did some really, you know, traditional bike racing, like the Leadville 100 and things like that, and 24-hour mountain bike racing, I'm now really moving to bike expeditions and self-supported bike packing and going long distance on the bike. And so that adventure racing, the navigational and the expedition planning is all coming full circle. So I, I feel like I'm using every tool in, in the tool chest right now for this kind of next phase of my cycling, which is really fun. Wow. I love that. It's like it, things you were doing early in your career that you didn't even know were going to build to help you now or coming back to serve you. I think for all of us, you know, in our careers, we, you know, everyone is like your job or whatever. It's all a foundation. You you know, you've built the foundation when you're, you know, go to college or you're in your twenties and you're like, what am I going to be when I grow up? And even that job working, you know, at a restaurant or or whatever it was, uh, that has built something in you that is, you know, sort of your pyramid of where you're going. Everything that happened before was necessary to build something, either whether it's I don't want to do that job, I can't work in an office, or I don't want to be like that boss or that person, to eventually finding, you know, where you really do want to go. And and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all building blocks for everybody. And it's kind of cool to look back and know that there was a lesson in every single job or path or decision that we made. And it all has shaped where we are right at this moment. Totally. I love that. It, there's a great story. I, who knows if it's true, but there's a great story I heard probably on a podcast somewhere. So I apologize to whoever I'm stealing, <laughs> stealing this from, but it's about Picasso. And, you know, he was like sitting down having lunch and was doodling on a napkin. And when he went to leave, the woman next to him was like, can I have that napkin? And Picasso's like, that'll be $20,000. And she was like, $20,000 is just a napkin you doodled on. She's like, you did that in 10 seconds. And he's like, no, that took me 30 years. Meaning like everything he had drawn up to that point, you know, had informed what he doodled on this napkin. That is great. Yeah. It's such a fun story. Again, probably not true, but it's more fun to just not fact check it and assume it is, you know? (laughs) So, you know, you talk about not knowing what's over the next hill. And I think you've spoken before about a few times, not knowing like what your next adventure is going to be. And so, how do you keep that uncertainty or that unpredictability from like giving you anxiety? So like, I guess what I'm asking is how confident were you in those moments when you were going on new adventures or you didn't know what might come next, that it would all fit together or or what was that? Was that an anxious moment for you or what was that like? 
those big changes um, or where you don't know the path, it's terrifying. And I am still, you know, even at this point in my career, I don't know what next year holds. And, you know, there's a lot of trepidation around launching events or being a pro athlete because it's, you know, the contracts are, it's not like I'm on tenure, you know, a professor at a university and unless yeah. or at a job, unless I really screw up, I'm going to get fired. I actually have to hustle for my job every single year. And, you know, a long-term contract, for example, might be three years. So I've got to constantly be evaluating and choosing and making choices and is this right? And there isn't a clear answer. I, I think when, you know, when I went to do Blood Road, which was the biggest ride and expedition of my life, riding the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 1,200 miles through Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, I, I went on that as a my biggest bike expedition, but also to find the place where my dad's plane was shot down in the Vietnam War. And that was five years ago and a really pivotal point for me. And I came home from that trip, you know, changed and moved, but also really lost. And I've spent the time since that ride evaluating what do I stand for? What's next? What does this all mean? Many of the adventures and expeditions I've done prior to Blood Road were really kind of what I felt like doing, you know, and it was following my heart and like, I want to go rock climbing. Mm -hmm. I want to go live Mm -hmm. out of my car. And they weren't really thought out. But after Blood Road, I really sat down and, and spent a couple of years in kind of a dark place to try to figure out what's my next step? What is the purpose of all this? And I really do feel like my dad, you know, even in his absence, he was teaching me and really, you know, I did some big soul searching and and a lot of journaling and tried to look for patterns in all of the pivots and the changes that I made in my career. And I was able to kind of articulate, you know, what is my recipe for success and how do I make the right choices? And this is a long answer, but getting back to your question of how do you make those choices when you're unsure? And so I kind of designed a little trail map for myself and some hmm. core values and you know even designed a logo that now has a map and a compass and the place where I found my dad's crash site because I really do feel like I finally have some direction. It doesn't mean I know where I'm going but I have a little bit of a compass, you know, and kind of like those adventure racing days, like I'm I'm trying to get to a point. I don't know what's going to be in between here and there. Um, and there's a couple of different ways to get there probably. But really for me now, the guiding principles are kind of doing what is right for me. And, you know, we can talk about that little trail map. But, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about that and we don't often sit and look back and look at a pattern in our life. Like, what are the pivotal moments in your life? You know, you got married, you moved, you took this job, whatever. And is there a pattern in all those exciting things? Or or a friend died or something. It's not necessarily all the great moments, but yeah. your pivotal moments of where you made a really big shift. And, you know, for most people and for me, when I looked at those things, there was a pattern. And there hmm. were similarities in every one of those that I could say, okay, well, I can mimic you know, I can look for those things again when I have another big choice in front of me. What were some of those similarities? 
Well, I kind of wrote it down to these little equations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it really kind of started with risk equals reward, you know, and that can go back into leaving a really great job, you know, running rock climbing gyms in L.A., being a business owner and uh, deciding to move into my car mm-hmm. and <laughs> have no health insurance, no job, uh, no direction because I wanted to go adventure racing. And I was being invited on these really amazing expeditions. And the only way to do it was to not have rent or a mortgage. And so, you know, that was one of the patterns and the reward that came from it, you know, was, was of course travel and all this, but it really did launch an athletic career for me, even though I didn't really realize that's what was happening. And so the risk equals reward pattern has really followed, followed a lot of my pivotal moments. The second equation is passion equals payoff. And you know, the pattern of my life, I could have made a lot more money, been a lot more secure, made some other choices that perhaps would have paid off in a great job or more financial stability or whatever. But really, I had to follow my heart. You know, for me, the thought of being in an office or a cubicle or something like that, you know, that that was I couldn't accept that. And so I had to go rock climbing and, you know, land in Idaho and, and take up mountain biking, even though I was terrible at mountain biking, it, it, it just felt right. And so um, that's the second equation. And then the third one that's really been evolving is give equals get. And that is part of me realizing that all these podiums, all of these accolades are really awesome. But when I actually share some of that reach, like launching my own event, Rebecca's Private Idaho, I'm so jazzed at the finish line to watch other people achieving their goals as much as me standing on a podium. And I've really started to realize that, you know, the more that you put out towards whether it's one person or your dog or a group of people by launching an event or, you know, some of the philanthropic work I do in Laos it, it mirrors right back on you. And so the more you give out, really, the more that you do get. And whether that's positive or negative energy, we really are a reflection of that. And so give equals get is the third one. And then the the last one that's really been developing for me is less equals more. And mm. this is part of our busy, plugged in lives is that we all pack so much into our world. And I'm guilty of it because I want to do this and I want to do that. And they're all really great things. But, you know, in the past few years, I've actually done too much and have found that, you know, it's eroded my health and wellness and, you know, family life. And that, you know, cutting some things out actually means I perform better doing less things, but doing them really high quality. And that's hard to say no to things. You know, I'm really, I'm really working on that. But we're in this world where we just pack every moment full of something. And so, so that's the, the fourth criteria that I, I really try to evaluate. So when so I'm faced with a decision, you know, I look at those four things. Is there some exciting, are my hands sweating? Is there something exciting, risky about it that feels, you know, exciting? It, am I passionate about it? Do I want to do it? Is there an aspect of that's bigger than me? And can I fit it into my world? And then ultimately, my dad's words from all of his letters home in Vietnam, he wrote the words, be good, when he signed off every letter. And I've taken that as my mission statement. You know, ultimately, if you really can't decide what to do, just be good. Hmm. And that's the name of my foundation. It's, 
you know, <laughs> part of my logo. It's, it's, it really is quite simple is to just be good. And whether that's to yourself, to other people, you know, to your health and wellness, we make things sometimes harder. But for me, having kind of that checklist of a few things has been really helpful. And it doesn't mean I have it all figured out or I know what I'm doing, but I have a place to return to. And mm-hmm. like I said, maybe a little bit of a magnetic, you know, compass guiding me, even though I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. There's so much in there I wanted to ask you about. But one thing I'll zero in on, I guess, is to bring it back to confidence a little bit. You know, you said something interesting in there, which is that you did mountain biking, which was not something you were necessarily very good at, but that it felt right to you. And the reason I want to zero on that is because, you know, part of the reason we're having conversations about confidence on this season of airplane mode is I, I think is presumes that everybody wants more confidence, that confidence is like a great thing. But to me, it sounds like maybe you weren't super confident in your ability to bike. And that sort of lack of confidence almost motivated you in a way that maybe the idea that having more confidence is a good thing is worth questioning here. Like, I'm just sort of wondering in real time if a lack of confidence can actually serve you in some way. I'm I'm curious how you might react to that. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves feeling confident. There's nothing better than like going into a room or getting on your bike or like rocking something that you you just know you're the best at and mm-hmm. you you got this. Like that feels really really good. But that's something that you've mastered. And for me it's it's almost like the sort of Buddhist philosophy of a beginner's mind. You're right. I'm I've never been a very confident person. I've always doubted my abilities from that high school running team to now to the event I'm going to do in Alaska is scaring, you know, scaring me. And so I've had to try to really work on confidence. It doesn't come naturally. And the process that I really use is preparation and okay. controlling what I can. And so for Alaska, for example, it's, you know, the equipment that I'm going to use, the confidence in, in like knowing I can light my stove, I can, you know, my sleeping bag, minus 40 sleeping bag, like I can sleep outside, I can practice that. That doesn't mean I'm going in totally confident in my abilities, but I'm confident in my equipment and my preparation. Hmm. And that takes, I mean, it's just like practicing for a speech, you know, or if you've done a TED talk or anything like Uh that, it's uh super scary to get up on stage and, and talk about something. The process that they make you do for, you know, TED or TEDx is you have to practice and Mm -hmm. you have to say it out loud, you know, in your bedroom or wherever. And so I do think to your point, there is, there is power in pessimism in some sort of a way, because if you're thinking, and I've done this when I'm bike racing, I'm like, I'm not fast enough. I'm not good enough. I need to try harder. What are my competitors doing? I need to show up better because I'm not a great bike handler. And so I need to be stronger on the uphills because I'm not as good on the downhills. And so it has that kind of sort of pessimism has actually made me work a lot harder. And most of the high achievers I know kind of think that they suck. Like, hmm. mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know a lot of people that are just like, that really are high achievers that are like, I am so good. I've got nothing else to learn. <laughs> yes. You know, the people who really are great, whether it's Lindsey Vaughn or, or any, any of the greats, they, they aren't arrogant about their abilities because they believe they can still do better and that there is always more to learn. And, 
And I absolutely believe life is an evolution. And yeah, I'm confident in the fact that I know I can go several hundred miles because I have I have the experience built up to say, well, okay, I've, I've seen that before. I've done that before. I've been through sleep deprivation or being hungry or being lost. And, and I have the tools to try to get out of that. That doesn't mean I always have the confidence like, oh, I'm going to win every race. And yeah, I've always yeah. thought this was crazy. People are like, oh, are you going to win? Like going into a race, I'm like, I don't know. Like it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be a race if we, why would we line up if we knew who was yeah, going to win? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you practice your toolbox. You put all the tools in there and practice with them so that you're confident when you pull them out. That doesn't necessarily mean that you think that you're the best or better than anybody else. What is the Alaska Expedition? So I'm going back for my second year to ride the Iditarod Trail, okay, um, yeah. the famous Iditarod Trail in Alaska. I'm doing the half version of it, so 350 miles, unsupported bike packing. So I'll be on a fat bike loaded down with, you know, winter expedition gear, and it's in the Alaskan wilderness. And, you know, I airdrop two five-pound packages of food that I'll get out there. And then ultimately planning for trying to tackle the 1,000-mile next year, which is the full length of the Iditarod Trail. Okay, wow, wow. Yeah, it's it's kind of gnarly. Like, temperatures yeah. can be minus 30. You know, you're riding a bike with all this gear on, and, you know, you're navigating. and But riding on the historic trail of, you know, the Iditarod. Yeah, I'm cool. sure it's incredible. <laughs> and you had just done this before you went on Rich Roll's podcast, right? Yeah, I, last year was my rookie year, and it's one of the cold is I'm not very good in the cold, and I've always shied away from from cold expedition races. And and at this point in my career, it just kind of felt like I needed to do something that really scared me and that was full commitment. Going there, I realized I hadn't committed to something like this that I really wasn't confident about in a very very long time. And so, I did a lot of research. I called up Colin O'Brady. I called up Jay Peter. All these expedition people that I know and got their help. And I finished it. I was the first woman to finish there. I think there were only about 20 people that finished, Wow! but it was really messy. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't do well with my eating and I got lucky, I think, and I survived with all my fingers and toes. Mm -hmm. But, um, so I'm going back this year with, you know, more confidence in my equipment, knowing that I can sleep out in the Alaskan wilderness. And, you know, I've learned a lot, but this is a very new form of cycling for me at this point in my career. And it's, it's kind of exciting. It makes me nervous, which yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, well, first of all, so Colin O'Brady uh, is the one who trekked across Antarctica, right? And, yeah. And Jay Peter. And Jay Peterberry is a good friend of mine. He's done the Iditarod Trail, I think, you know, 15 times or something and won it multiple times. And he also lives in Idaho. And so he's a really well-known bike expedition athlete and, and a good friend. And so he sort of fast-tracked my learning with, with little things like just little equipment hacks and, you know, ways to keep warm. And, you know, when you're cold, get off your bike and start walking if your feet are cold because huh. the act of walking actually warms your feet because they're flexing and moving. Whereas on the bike, your feet are static and just... Things oh, like that, that I was like, okay, all right, I yeah. have some. And that's what gave me confidence to go is that I had some strategies from people that knew, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. Colin talked to me a lot about food and how many calories to try to get in and, you know, timing yourself and eating every 15 minutes. And so I had the confidence only because I was able to reach out to some really skilled people and, and talk to them about their 
you know, Antarctic and winter expedition survival. And so completing something like that, how does that change your confidence outside of a endurance or adventure sports context? Like, for instance, something like the TED Talk. If that made you very nervous, were there lessons that you could take from doing these races that could then serve you in that or in any sort of, you know, other everyday type of uh, way? Absolutely. I, I mean, what I take and, you know, I call it controlling the controllables and sort of the what if, like, what's the worst thing that could happen okay, I forget what I'm going to say for the, yeah. the TED talk, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen. And so, and so you control that and you practice it and, and you do it a bunch of times and you find tricks and hacks and ways, you know, keywords to remember things. And for Alaska, you know, I take basically the, the learning and that if you can be a student and if you don't know something, you know, we stop being students, you know, we go to high school and college and, you know, maybe get your master's and then often then you get your job and you're supposed to know everything. Yeah. Yeah. And why do we stop being students? Mm-hmm. And so that is a big lesson for me is that I can go ask Colin O'Brady or I can go ask somebody and be like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Will you help me? And our ego often doesn't let us ask those questions or ask for help. I mean, luckily we can go online and search a whole bunch of things, but there's nothing like personal experience. And I have found when I ask people, anyone, they're, they're more than willing to share. There's been so many people that have said, yeah, I'll help you. And it, it's, we just have to ask. But I think the older that we get, we feel like we're supposed to know how to do stuff, especially as an elite athlete or a world champion or, you know, author or whatever, you're supposed to have it all figured out. And that's just kind of bull. Like none of us have it figured out. Nobody knows. (laughs) And so like banding together and asking for help is a really powerful experience. And I've never had somebody say, no, I won't help you. That's so great. I mean, that's one of those things that you hear and you're like, of course we should ask for help, but you're right. The ego just gets in the way and we just don't do it as often as we should. But yeah, that's such a powerful reminder, I think. Yeah, we got to stick together and teach each other. I mean, and that's a a lot of the give equals get, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Definitely. People love to give. They love to help, but they don't think that you need it because you seem really accomplished or you seem like you've got it all figured out or you put this exterior like, I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't don't need any help. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. But we all do. I want to go back. Uh, The reason I originally asked about if you had done that Alaska expedition before the Rich Roll podcast was because I think on that podcast you referenced it. You obviously referenced it, but I think you said I can do it better in reference to you then going back this year. It seems like even when you win a race, have you felt like I could do it better? And if so, like how do you liberate yourself? Like at what point do you feel like, okay, I've done it the best I can and I don't need to do it again? Or is 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 the carrot sort of always five feet ahead? I think you're exactly right. I did leave Alaska last year saying, okay, I survived. I achieved my goals, but I can and I want to do it better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that comes into the the passion part of when I want to do it. And people have asked me quite often, like I've pivoted in my career, even within cycling, a lot. And I used to do 24-hour solo racing. Then I sort of went to mountain bike stage races, then 100 milers like Leadville 100. And, you know, I'm doing some gravel racing now and I've pivoted each time. And now a lot of bike packing and expedition riding. And really the pivot is not that, you know, Leadville's a really good example. I did that race eight times. I won it four times. 
And that's 100 miles, right, in the Rockies? Yeah, it's 100 miles in Colorado. The race starts at 10,000 feet, so it's a really high elevation race. You know, and it takes seven and a half hours for me, which is, for me, relatively short. You know, that's a sprint event. Yeah. Um, And I had to really train specifically for it and, you know, worked really hard with my coach and, you know, developed a specialty in doing that type of event. And then after I'd won it four times, and then I did it a couple times, I did once with... um, a double amputee uh, veteran and rode with him and rode with a girlfriend and helped her achieve her best time. And then after that, I just kind of, not that I was bored with the event, but to your point, there were other things I wanted to do. And I just started thinking, I wonder about these other races. And it's important to listen to that little voice on your shoulder. Hmm. And it's not to say I wouldn't ever go back to that race, but I feel like we have limited time and there's so many cool adventures to do. And each time I've pivoted like that, it's been mostly because there's a little voice in my head saying, I wonder what's over there. So we all have those little like, I wonder what, you know, it's that childlike curiosity of like, what would that be like? Or could I do it? And I think it's served me well to listen to those things. And people ask, well, how did you know? And how did you pivot? And it's it's really just listening to the small voice inside your head of like, I kind of want to do something else now. Totally. I think that's that is for a lot of people, I think that's a difficult voice to listen to. It's really hard because yeah. you have to have the freedom to pivot. And we all have life responsibilities or family or mortgages or whatever. And so you have to make sure you have a safety net. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was invited to riverboard the Grand Canyon, two things I don't like is water and cold. And uh, I was invited with some really great water women uh, to be the first women people to swim the Grand Canyon on basically on a boogie board in winter. Wow. It took us 30 days and they invited me. I was like, "Uh, why did you invite me? There's got to be somebody better. (laughs) I didn't have a lot of whitewater experience and I wasn't good in cold. And they're like, we just know that you will try really hard and you won't quit. And I was Mm -hmm. like, all right, all right. And so I went on this amazing expedition with these two women, these two friends of mine But I had a bailout option. I looked on the map. I knew all the places I could hike out of the Grand Canyon. And I'm like, okay, I can walk out. If it's not going well, I'll just leave. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not to abandon my friends, but I had had bailout options for me. And I think when anybody's making a big, scary life decision, you know, there's got to be a bailout option. Same when I moved into my car and left my job. It was like, okay, I don't owe anybody any money. You know, I can always go back and get another job. And so I, you know, I I made sure I covered myself and it's hard to do, but having, you know, having a bailout option, what are, what is the worst thing that can happen? Okay. I have to go back and get another job or I have to go back and live with my mom or, you know, we can all kind of evaluate what's the worst thing that could happen. And and do I have a plan for that? Uh, Yeah. I like that you came back to something you said earlier too, which is like, what's the worst that can happen? That seems like just a great baseline question to ask yourself whenever you're scared to jump into something. Yeah. Evaluate, is the fear rational or is it controllable or is the fear excitement? Yeah. You know, is the fear like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. And I think those two emotions are really tied closely together. Definitely. You've said before that when your palms are sweating, it's like a yes sign uh, (laughs) or like something that signals that you should do it. Do you have other sort of yes signs? Yeah, I mean, what happened with Iditarod last year, it's like 
you know, I was thinking about it. And yeah, as soon as I started thinking about it, my hands would start sweating. But then Mm. instantly my mind would get really active of like, okay, well, I could do these boots or this clothing or I could call that person. And I found that my mind was really engaged in, you know, trying to plan the expedition. And so I think that that's a great sign of like, you find physical markers like your heart is racing and your hands are sweating. Yeah, yeah. But also emotionally, if you're if your brain keeps going back to that thing and it keeps popping into your head and maybe you write about it or you tell a friend about it or you're out on a bike ride and this is what was happening to me. I, I found myself thinking about Iditarod and I found myself looking, you know, for films about, the, you know, the dogs, the dog sled racing. Mm-hmm. And so it just kept returning to my brain. And so that was a kind of like a, hello, Rebecca, this <laughs> thing is knocking on your head and in your heart and in your head. And so maybe you should listen for a minute. My girlfriend's about to take a trip to Southeast Asia, like for a year, she's leaving. And she's like, it's because I've had this voice in my head that just keeps saying you have to go. And it's interesting because so I'm, cool. yeah, and I'm not, you know, I've been plagued with self-doubt my whole life. So I often quiet that voice and she's the opposite of that she hears that voice and she's like cool whatever you tell me to jump into i'm gonna jump into <laughs> she sounds great <laughs> she is great i wish she weren't moving to southeast asia well but you anyway, can go visit her <laughs> exactly definitely definitely has there been something you've jumped into that you felt like maybe i shouldn't have done this or yikes i didn't quite do the preparation yeah there's plenty of stuff that I've been like, I I could have prepared a lot more. And I, I think that's part of, you know, we hold ourselves back. And I, I really think that women, especially, I see this trait, you know, whether it's asking for promotion or, or doing a race, you're like, well, I'm not ready. I, I'll do it next year. I could prepare more. I could be better. I could. And Alaska, you know, was an example of that. I wasn't prepared. You know, mm-hmm. I had a month, you know, people had been planning for a year and I basically decided a month out, okay, I'm going to go for it and kind of jumped in with both feet. And part of the reason it was messy for me is I wasn't in the right physical kind of shape for it. I hadn't really been training a lot for it. And, and I went anyway and I controlled what I could and I survived. So I think there's never a good time to get a dog or change jobs yeah, or yeah, have a child yeah. or sign up for an event. There's never, things are never perfectly aligned. And so I think accepting kind of our own imperfections and, you know, good enough is good enough. I, I kind of have this 80% rule that I, I learned from, you know, my coach, my longtime coach of bike racing, you know, he'd lay out the workout plan for the whole week of everything I'm supposed to do. And I don't think there was maybe one or two weeks in, you know, 10 years of working with this guy where I was a hundred percent did everything that was asked huh. of me. Wow. But a hundred percent of the time I got about 80% there and you know, that was good enough to win a bunch of world championships and mm-hmm. do a bunch of really great things. And so often I think we, we sort of paralyze ourselves by trying to be perfectionists when 80% is often pretty good. Yeah. You know, it'll get you there. So I, I've sort of had to let go of some of my perfectionism and be like, like Alaska last year and be like, okay, I think I can survive this. The, the expectation, I don't know if I'll win or any of that. It's I want to, I want to finish it with my fingers and toes. And I think part of what is your expectation of what does winning look like and what is your definition of a successful endeavor? 
it may not be. I did a race last weekend where I didn't actually finish. It was a snow bike race, a 200 miler, and I got to mile 125 and uh, I pulled the plug there. But I had achieved huh. my goal of practicing for Alaska and really good training day and, and trying out some food and equipment. And I view that as a success. One person finished. <laughs> it was just snowing like crazy. Wow. So continuing the next 75 miles, I would have been walking my bike yeah. and it actually would have been detrimental to my training. And it, that race wasn't the ultimate goal. You know, huh. Alaska is the big goal that I'm going towards. So people are like, are you bummed? You dropped out? I'm like, no, it was 100% the right decision. And I rode my bike for 32 hours straight in the snow with, you know, and I tested out all this equipment. Like that was, that was enough. <laughs> I love that. That's great. And it sounds like you were, a lot of that also comes from having that clarity of vision of Alaska is the ultimate goal, you know, which is, it's like an argument for knowing what you want and knowing what you're, what you're going after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know you get asked about pain a lot. <laughs> Who dubbed you the queen of pain? That's a, it's an old nickname from my adventure racing days. Okay. And you know, a cover of a magazine that is no longer yes. in existence. And so, yeah, I was given that nickname by my adventure racing peers and people ask me all the time is like, you know, what's your relationship with pain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is this about? And honestly, pain and really like ultra long distance stuff, you know, that I do, it really is my teacher. You know, when I am really tired and been going for a long time, I actually, I feel like sort of the defense layers are stripped away. And who I am as a human is raw and exposed and you know, with the physical barrier removed, you know, emotionally, I'm able to tap into thoughts and who I am and, and learn about myself in a different way than when I'm in my everyday life and I'm just doing an hour bike ride. You know, that's a different experience for me than doing an ultra endurance event where I really do strip away all of the defense layers that, that I build up every day. And so, it's not that I want to feel pain, <laughs> but, you know, that kind of deprivation is a teacher. And it's it's an ancient sort of practice from sweat lodges or a vision quest or, you know, doing something like that where you, you physically are depriving yourself so that you can tap into your raw emotional being. Hmm. Do you remember the first time that you tapped into that or got, you know, past the sort of threshold of pain that um, got you to a place where you felt like it was teaching you something? Yeah, it was, I mean, high school running, going back okay. to that very yeah, yeah. first cross-country running events in high school, you know, we ran two miles, which, you know, the yeah. races were like 15 minutes. But at that point in my life, that felt like an eternity. And I felt huh. like I had this whole epiphany during these ups and downs and I'm going to quit. I can't do it. Oh, I can do it. And, you know, oh, I'm catching that next person. And so that cross country running in high school at that young age, that is really where I got the endurance bug and started to understand that physically pushing myself would make me stronger emotionally and mentally. Hmm. You were and doing I'm it. still working on it. That's why I'm going to Alaska again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I was just going to say, it's remarkable. You, you know, that was two miles and now uh, you're calling a seven hour ride in the in the Rockies <laughs> at 10,000 feet going up to 14,000 feet, a sprint event. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> kudos to you. <laughs> What's the single most difficult or, or most painful 
expedition or adventure or endurance race that you've done? Blood Road, riding the Ho Chi Minh mm. Trail, was the hardest thing I've done in my life. And we talked a little bit about it. It was 1,200 miles, you know, piecing together a historical path down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I don't think anyone's ridden it from start to finish, you know, from uh, Hanoi down to Ho Chi Minh City. You know, I put that project together with Red Bull Media House and, you know, they helped document it. And it, it was the biggest expedition I've ever done. We were 30 days on the trail, you know, machete through the jungles. There's unexploded ordnance all around, you know, there's tigers and elephants and, you know, dealing with a jungle expedition, going through caves. So it was it was really intense as a physical expedition and the planning for it was logistically super challenging. But honestly, the hardest part of that and the reason why it was so difficult for me, there's a few reasons. One, it was a very emotional trip for me to go connect with my father, who I, I never really met. But two, you know, having a film crew and having people there with me in something that was very personal and very solitary expedition, being vulnerable and being open and talking to the camera was very much out of my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And so I was uncomfortable much of the time because there were people there. And I'm I'm used to sort of being in my own head and having a bit of moving meditation when I'm out doing these expeditions. And I'm used to being in a lot more control of I'm going here, I'm playing this, I'm doing that. I had to let go of control and I had to let people in. And Mm. that was extremely hard for me and a really big lesson. And the follow-up, you know, going on film tour with Blood Road and over and over and over again, talking very openly and crying in front of people and Mm -hmm. talking about my own personal experience was really hard for me because that's not my style. But what I started to learn from that is the power of, sharing a story and how many people felt like they could understand my journey and it was helping their journey. And, you know, all these veterans or cyclists or people who lost somebody, they were all coming up and hugging me and connecting. And whether somebody has an Emmy award-winning film like Blood Road and you can go share that story is one thing, but even just going and talking to a friend about what you went through the other day. I mean, we've talked a lot about it, our ego keeps us from being open and sharing. And, you know, I did that for 45 years of my life as well. And I'm learning now that the more that we do give, the more we get back. And the more we open up and share stories, you actually help somebody else heal themselves. And Hmm. that's pretty powerful. And even podcasts like this, you know, you said you launched this podcast to sort of work on the project of yourself. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and we're we're all a work in progress. And so opening up and sharing is, is so essential, but it was really hard for me. And so that is by far the biggest, hardest expedition of my life because I'm used to being super tough, super strong, having control of everything. And I really had to let go of that and go slower than I wanted to go and talk more than I wanted to talk, but it has ended up being the most valuable experience of my life. And, you know, it's launched my purpose and all of those, you know, core values that I was able to articulate Uh and write down. None of that would have happened without taking that journey in the way that it was laid out. That's beautiful. I'm glad it returned all that to you. It has, and it continues to, but it, you know, it's, it's a hard road of, of Mm self-reflection and, you Mm -hmm. know, 
I would never say to anyone that, you know, trying to figure out what you stand for and what you're doing is an easy path. It's not. It's easier to actually just shove it down into the hole and not self-examine. But, you know, it's just like pain is my teacher. It was a painful process to do all that. But on the other side of that process, whether it's a long endurance event or the endurance event of after blood road for me of figuring out, you know, what, what is this all for? Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a endurance process that, you know, there are rewards on the other side that when you're in the middle of it are not apparent to you. And it just Mm. feels like a big struggle. Yeah. Well, that sort of leads us into the final question of the podcast, (laughs) which is, it does have to do with sort of something that you can't maybe visualize at the time that is going to benefit you. But we asked for a favorite fuck up. So something that like maybe <laughs> a little bit of perspective or viewed from a different lens was something that ended up serving you. Yeah, that's a super good question. And I think everybody should go back and answer and look at their favorite fuck ups. <laughs> there's a lot to be had from those. It's where all the learning happens, right? It, I mean, it really is. It's, you know, it's good to reflect on your fuck-ups because that's, you know, it's easy to win. If a ride goes perfectly, a race goes perfectly, and you stand on the podium and put your arms up, awesome. You know, that's yeah. addicting and it's amazing. But, yeah, the learning really happens if you if you look at your mistakes. So, you know, one really powerful one is tied into right before going on the Ho Chi Minh Trail Blood Road Expedition, I actually elected to leave a long-term bike sponsor and partner that was a very big company, very big, powerful company, you know, and I went to them with the, you know, I have a film, you know, we're going to do this amazing expedition with Red Bull and here you go on a platter. And the response was, you know, it'd been a 15 year relationship of like push and pull and, Hmm. and they kind of came back and, you know, offered another one year contract and, you know, I was like, you know what, this is a two, three, five-year project. And so I actually said no. I turned down the contract without knowing where else I would land. Mm. Um, and was ready to put duct tape over, you know, the yeah. bike brand and just go. And, and really, and they asked, was this about money? And I said, no, it's about principle. Is This is who I am. This is who I stand for. This is really important to me. And if it doesn't seem important to you, then we're probably not aligned. Uh-huh. And it was really scary as an athlete to to leave that and say no without a safety net. And what happened from that is that it was the first time I really stood up for what I believed in instead of, you know, taking a paycheck, which, you know, as a pro athlete, you need to take those contracts. But I said no to the money because the principle wasn't right. And hmm. what it made me do was really stick up for me as a brand and Rebecca as a human instead of just slapping a logo on myself and and taking a check. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I mean, I know we didn't talk maybe directly about confidence, but it was a, it, I so enjoyed it and I think we were talking around it in a lot of ways and that's, you know, an arbitrary sort of parameter we put on this anyway. So, it doesn't really even matter. <laughs> but I so appreciate and agree with what you said about sharing stories and I'm just grateful that you came on and shared it here. I know less is more is one of those core values. So I know you don't say yes to everything. So thank you so much. Well, in return, you can uh, you can come and ride bikes with me in Idaho and, and we can talk about it some more on the trail. All right. I'd like that. I don't know if that sounds like a reward. I mean, it sounds pretty painful, but as we've learned, pain's a good teacher. So I, I might take you up here. on it. Okay. You'll love it here. All right. <laughs> Next time we do this, we'll do it from Idaho on, uh, on bikes. It's a deal. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. Be good. 
That is all for today. I'm so grateful for Rebecca coming on. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm going to take you up on that trip to Idaho. Don't know what I'm in for. Not a great biker, but we'll see. Thank you to Jessamine Molly, our producer. Thank you to you guys for listening. I'm so grateful when you guys reach out. I love to hear from you. Again, I'm at clay underscore skipper at gq.com. Here for all feedback, negative or positive. Try to take it into consideration. And I'll see you guys next Tuesday for another episode of Airplane Mode and another conversation on confidence. 